for over the last 15 years or so, the New York Times bestsellers list has shown a statistical rise in the category of biography or memoir, which makes complete and utter sense to me because for the past, last 15 years, I've been an adult reader, and that is almost exclusively what I read. Uh, if you ask me what I'm reading, it's probably always going to be a biography. Besides Christian theological nonfiction, like things we read in here and things we do together, I read a lot of biographies. It's my favorite. I always have. I think that's where my deep love of history and storytelling are allowed to intertwine, and I enjoy it in a, just a beautiful way. I think the first one that really got me hooked was Hiroshima by John Hersey, um, which is the first time I experienced that type of work, this biographical work. I was made to read it in my 11th grade uh, history class, and ever since then, it's been my favorite. It's what I always love. But even when I don't read biographies, I probably watch them on TV. Uh, this week, I watched The Iron Lady. Has anybody seen that? The Iron Lady, um, which is the story of Margaret Thatcher, um, and she's played by Meryl Streep. I watched half the movie before I realized it was Meryl Streep. Um, <laughs> but she has a lot of makeup on. But they tell the story backwards, and so it begins when Margaret Thatcher already has dementia and then kind of plays backwards into the memory and shows you all of her accomplishments and how she became the first female prime minister of England. I found it fascinating. A book that I just got finished reading is called Out of Hatred, which is a story of a young man who grew up with parents that were in the KKK and was in the KKK, and how going to college and getting an education pulled him out of that realm and how he learned not to be a hateful person. It's a beautiful story, but it was really heavy and it was kind of hard to read. So when I was planning my summer reading, the what things I wanted to read at the beach this summer or just lightly when I didn't have schoolwork or other things to do. Um, I wanted something lighter. I wanted something more digestible. Maybe not so much Margaret Thatcher and um, you know KKK people, but something a little lighter. So my youngest brother, knowing my preferences for biography, handed me the Carol Burnett autobiography at the beginning of the summer. Um, Carol Burnett is slightly before my time, just a little bit. Um, so I wasn't, I haven't been exposed to that much Carol Burnett until I read this biography. It was relatable, it was engaging, it was hilarious, it was everything you would ever want out of a Carol Burnett autobiography. But more than anything, I think biographies make you feel this weird connection, right? Like when Carol Burnett talked about the extreme poverty of starting out at 18 with nothing and trying to make it in this world, I could see myself in that. I've been in those spaces. When she talked about the difficulties and the joy of motherhood, I thought, this is so relatable. You are just like me. I could see myself in it. I felt connected to her. And see, that's what I think the writers of Hebrews are doing to us in this chapter. When the writer says, look, look at all of these people. I have so many stories to tell you. Look what all they have done. Look at their humanity. Look at who they are. Are they really that different from you? Are they that different from us? Where do we connect with these people in this history of faith? The first thing that stands out to me when I read that and when I read this passage is what faith did not do for these Old Testament humans and not as much what faith did do. Faith did not quench their suffering. Faith did not stop their pain. 
Faith does not exempt us from experiencing the full depth and breadth of our humanity. The text says they were tortured and they were beaten and they were chained and they were imprisoned. And these people are who are held up as the pinnacle of examples of our faith and they suffered. If this is the biography of our faith, of our Christianity, where do we connect with the storytellers? But we connect in our suffering. I watched an interview this week, and if you haven't seen it, you should really go watch it, of late night talk show host Stephen Colbert and reporter Anderson Cooper. And the discussion was about grief. And for a little bit of backstory, if you don't know these two people, Stephen Colbert has been very open in talking about the plane crash that resulted in the death of both his father and several of his brothers in 1974. And then Anderson Cooper was the interviewer, and he just lost his mother, who is Gloria Vanderbilt, um, earlier this year. So there was this incredible honest and grace-filled moments in this interview where both men were choking back tears talking about their grief. At one point, Stephen Colbert said people would often ask my mother how she dealt with losing a child. And being the devout Catholic that this woman was, she prayed every day at this crucifix that sits next to my desk. And she told people, I deal with it by looking to Jesus and then asking Mother Mary to pray for me because I know that she knows what it feels like to lose a child. Because I know that she knows what it feels like to lose a child. He went on to say, Stephen Colbert went on to say, it is a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. The writer of Hebrews wanted us to know that faith doesn't preclude us from suffering in this world, but that we don't have to suffer alone. There are countless stories in our book, in our gospel, and in our communities where pain has been felt and others feel pain. The experiences of grief and pain and hurt is what we all have. You are not unique in your pain. I am not unique in my pain. Whatever issue grips your heart and your life and your body, the same thing affects others as well. Someone else has felt your pain. You are not alone. We are not alone. This past week was an extremely long week for me. For those of you that may remember or are experiencing in any way the first week of school as a teacher or as a parent, it is exhausting, it is draining, it is all the words you can think of that sound like tired. That is what it is. Tuesday night I had parent-teacher conference for Winnie. Wednesday I had meet the teacher for Winnie. Those are actually two separate events, I'm not sure why. We had meet the teacher for Winnie. Thursday night I had open house for Eden and then Friday morning I had Winnie's first day of preschool so it was a lot all crammed into this week and that is on top of the fact that it's also classes started at Rhodes so Corey had new faculty orientations and things that kept him at work much later than usual so all these parenting gigs this week I was solo it was just me so towards the end of the week I was just mentally exhausted by the whole thing and to be honest with you, I think the kids were too. So Thursday evening, we have Eden's open house, and Winnie walks in there overwhelmed. She's done with it. We can't handle it. And at Eden's open house, Winnie has a full meltdown in the middle of the classroom, screaming, kicking, just 
everything you can think of as a three-year-old fit. She completely lost it. So I made some like quick joke to Eden's teacher, like, congratulations, you got my quiet child, and like ran out of the room. <laughs> uh, and just exited as quickly as possible. We get home, we're all tired. I'm plating the dinner that comes out of the crock pot. Corey rolls up at the same time, and he goes to the back of the house to get changed, and I'm putting plates out, and then I start pouring water for everybody, and we're about to sit down and have our first family dinner in like a week and a half, and actually sit down together. And then I hear this noise, a really lack of a noise. And it's the noise of your parent you absolutely know. It sounds like someone should be breathing and they're not. Winnie was choking. And not a little bit choking, not like something didn't go down the right way, but by the time I got to Winnie, her lips were blue, her eyes were red, and, and like tears were streaming down her face. She was choking. Now, I've been a mother for almost eight years now, and I have given the Heimlich maneuver more times than I can possibly count. Maybe that's just me. I don't know if other mothers experience this, but I know that I do. I've done the Heimlich maneuver a lot. So in my head, I had the knowledge to accomplish what I knew I needed to do. You clear the airway. You turn them over. You hit the back. I know these things. I know these things. I've done it. Muscle memory kicks in. I've done it a million times. I know what has to happen for this equation to come out favorably on my end. But that does not stop me from hysterically screaming. It does not stop me from screaming Corey's name what felt like 57 times. It didn't stop my body from freaking out. It didn't stop for every fiber of my being to just lose it. I was screaming in the kitchen. And it feels like by the time Corey ran from the back of the house and showed up in the kitchen, automatically when he was breathing. We did the things, she was breathing, it, I cried. But besides that, everything was okay. I think sometimes in the midst of great suffering, our mind can know to do all the right things. We know that grief and pain can come into our lives and we can recite those Sunday school stories of Israel fleeing the Egyptians or the walls of Jericho falling down or the stories of Rahab or Gideon or Samson. Our head knows that God made a way for them. Our head knows that pain doesn't last forever. Our head knows that peace must be on the way, that resurrection must be right around the corner. Our head knows the right things, but our hearts, our hearts panic. Our hearts say, I don't know if God can come through on this one. I know God has come through a thousand times before, but what if she doesn't breathe this time? What if it doesn't happen this time? What if we can't fix it this time? What if I can't do it? What if I'm not enough? In my moment of panic this week, all I knew what to do was just to scream for help. And it feels like that's what the writers of Hebrews are drawing us to that conclusion as well. Hebrews reminds us that the people in our text, they're wanderers who did not receive what was promised. They're people of great faith that suffered greatly. But because of them, we get a promise. Because of them, we get help. The first help we get is our great cloud of witnesses. The history of the faith that reminds us that we are held in our weaknesses. That reminds us that we don't suffer alone. The lineage of faith that is before us, far more than what is in the hall of faith. Stephen Colbert's mother reached out to the mother that is Mary, but maybe for you it's your own mother that you look to as your lineage of faith. Maybe it is your grandparents 
Maybe it is that minister from your childhood that held your hand and, and helped you figure out what the gospel is. Maybe it's somebody. We have a great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us to show us the path. Someone we can look to and say, I know life isn't always okay, but if we keep walking through our pain, we will get to something beautiful. There is someone in your life, either now or before, who you saw beauty in their life, and you know how to get there. The great cloud of witnesses is urging us to follow that path, to keep going. When we feel like our faith is running low and we can't move another step, we can dip into the well of the wilderness, I'm sorry, in the well of the witnesses and borrow from the faith of our brothers and sisters that have gone before us and our brothers and sisters who sit beside us. We are not alone. So what are we walking towards? The book of Hebrews answers that as well. We are walking in the direction of the author and the finisher of our faith, the pioneer and the perfecter. When life seems too large and suffering seems too long, when it looks like there is more Red Sea than there is dry land, our counselor, our helper, our savior, our redeemer, that is who rescues us. Not by removing the pain from our lives, but by being present with us in it and to give us hope for the future. Why do biographies resonate so much with society? Because those stories show us where we all have the same experiences that connect us. And then they make the differing stories seem possible. When I read women like Carol Burnett or hear stories of Margaret Thatcher, I relate to their motherhood, but I find possibility in their tenacity and in their drivenness, and I find comfort in that it seems like anything is possible. When I read the biography of faith that is the chapter of Hebrews, I find commonality in the suffering. I find possibility in their perseverance, the perseverance of this great cloud of witnesses. And I find comfort that hope is out there, that hope is present, that hope has a name. At one point in the Gospel of John, a lot of the followers of Jesus began to desert him. It's at the end of chapter 6. Many of the disciples were saying, this is too hard of a gospel and we can't do it. It's too much. And so Jesus then turns to Peter, who he seems to be super close to, and says, Peter, do you, do you want to leave? Do you want to leave now, Peter? And then Peter looks to Jesus which, in a way that I can only envision is extremely compassionate. And he says, but where else can I go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Take heart, church. When life is a struggle and grief seems far, grief seems close, hope is near. When grief is close, hope is near. And it is near in Jesus, who is our constant companion. And there is nothing better. Where else can we go? There is no experience that can leave us as whole and as complete and as fulfilled as the very words of Jesus. Where else can we go but to the feet of Jesus, the one that holds us now and forever? Where else can we go but to the one 
that delivered them out of Egypt and that is delivering us right now. Let us pray.